Welcome to the WAU Most Awesome Founder podcast, a show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. I'm your host, Ries Vaans, and today we welcome to the podcast Marco D'Assisti. Marco is an alumnus of our WAU MBA program, as well as an alumnus of the first cohort of the WAU Accelerator program, when he was building the startup KitchX. Marco has recently launched a new startup called Calimero, and I'm looking forward to talk with Marco about this new initiative. Marco, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dries. Thanks for having me. Now, as you might know, we always start with the same question in this podcast, namely, we actually want to give uh, the floor to our guests to do some storytelling about their personal background. So I would say the floor is yours to tell something about where you're coming from, what you have been doing in the past. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, so basically, um, I am a VAU alum. Um, I did my MBA, uh, graduated 2020. And since then, I Lasse and I, which is also an alumni from the MBA batch, went on to found Kijix. Um, we both met during our studies at the MBA, which was great, meeting on campus, identifying potential ideas, validating them. So it was a great setting. And um, yeah. And eventually, we ended up building um, Kitchix, which was a D2C furniture retail player. It was a completely digitalized end-to-end um, retail model, which basically sold furniture and fully fitted kitchens. And we started this at the end of 2020. And um, one of the special things that we 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 built, Lasse and I, and um, was was the fact that we built the whole customer journey on on WhatsApp. Mm. So it was basically the world's first uh, WhatsApp store, you can say. And um, we built a whole sales and servicing funnel, which enabled us to generate a total of around 6 million revenues annualized um, within the first two years. Um, Mm. So this was our basically background behind it. Um, Unfortunately, um, during the VC downturn of 2023 and a sharp decline in consumer spending, um, where consumers started spending more on energy uh, renovations Mm. instead of home renovations, um, and generally the funding environment, we weren't able to raise a Series A, also partly due to the scalability of the model. Um, and we ended up running down the company in October 2023, um, mm. trying obviously with all the stakeholders and employees to meet their demands as much as possible. Yeah. But what we did learn from our experience of building this um, was the power of conversational commerce and the power of WhatsApp uh, in capturing cold traffic on website and converting mm. on leads. Yeah. Maybe but before we move forward to Calimero about KitchX, um, so you were saying, look, uh, Abby, we had some kind of bad luck in terms of the macroeconomic circumstances, which I think is definitely the case. But you also briefly pointed to kind of some issues in terms of scalability, which which is actually an issue that I often see with startups, that scalability might in the end be tougher than you initially expected. Could you maybe briefly talk a bit deeper about what was exactly the problem with scalability in your case? Yes, I think the level of operations required um, for us was very, very high. So Mm. we had logistics partners, we have contractors that were working with us. Um, The more we scaled in new regions, the more logistics setup costs were required, the more contractor costs were required. 
So an additional euro in sales meant an additional mm. euro cents in costs that would come. Yeah. So scalability was in the end not ideal for a series A, especially comparing it with other SaaS models that scale much faster, right? Yeah. So you were saying that as you were growing, also the complexity was growing, triggering additional costs, and that put some limits to your unit economics, scalability, and especially in the current kind of funding climate uh, where, the, where we have entered the age of efficiency, that was a huge concern for some of the investors. But also, scale, also another issue is scaling marketing. So marketing okay. costs um, started um, over uh, customer acquisition costs did uh, uh, also move up and down quite quite a lot. Uh, this was partly due because um, you are, as an e-commerce company, still very reliant on the big channels uh, of Meta to advertise. Um, yeah. And anybody can advertise. So um, we saw an influx of a lot of competitors increasing their spending during the financial downturn as consumer spending okay. went down a lot of traditional large players started entering and bidding in the market which drove our customer acquisition costs up yeah okay clear but so now you decided to start a new initiative which which is a kind of i would say follow-up initiative not it's based on what you have learned at kitchx uh, that you are now building calimero can you explain a bit more in depth what, what you're exactly doing? So you're also, I saw on LinkedIn, it's about an AI powered WhatsApp chat, which sounds very yeah. fancy. So that's good. <laughs> but can you explain a bit more what, what, what we exactly need to understand with that? Yes. So basically with, with Kitchix, we really understood the power of WhatsApp in converting mm. cold traffic on a website. So individuals that are just interested or just browsing on the website, and converting that traffic into actual leads that, or even buyers. Mm. And WhatsApp is very, very powerful at doing that. The issue was always with WhatsApp, you will have to have human interaction. And um, it is therefore quite costly. You will have to have service employees, servicing, messaging, and asking customer questions. And so that's what we learned from Kitchix, the power of you know, WhatsApp and converting those leads. What we are now doing with Qualimero is we decided to build a SaaS solution around, you know, the very basic ideas that, that we, we had implemented, but started now creating a real SaaS solution based upon um, WhatsApp and AI agents that can be deployed behind it. Mm. So, um, basically, the underlying idea is customers of usually high ticket items come onto the website specific questions they feel they they need to be answered before either making a transaction or purchasing something and these answers or these questions can be answered by sales agents whose idea is to actually convert them into you know a next event whether it be mm. a consultation call whether it be a checkout at the store or whether it be it um, you know a brochure or um, yeah so that's 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 our idea. Yeah. Um, the great thing about it is that these employees usually required to answer the questions now through the leveraging of large language models such as OpenAI um, mm. are not necessary to that same degree, and they run twenty four seven, seven days a week, uh, and 
the custom appeals or perceived higher um, customer satisfaction and availability of the retailer. Okay, but so it means, um, and let's imagine I'm a customer and I'm browsing on a website uh, to buy a new kitchen. So what you offer to this kind of companies is a solution that when I'm browsing on the website that uh, I can engage in a chat via WhatsApp where uh, kind of the, the bot or whatever you call it can actually kind of push me towards the next step in my customer journey, not that I make an exactly. appointment or even already make an, uh, an order. That's, that's the kind of solution that you want to provide to that kind of companies that are engaged in D2C, I suppose. Exactly. So how do customers today reach out you know, to a potential retailer? They have the contact page mm. um, where they fill out a static form. There is the so-called lead journey where they click through some stuff and do some scrolling and add some data that they don't really mean. And 99% of these people end up ending the customer journey or the, the lead journey, the lead funnel before and having to enter their private detail. Yeah. Um, or they have some sort of bot which gives you predefined answers or they try to mm. call you. All of these yeah. solutions are semi-ideal. Um, the, mm. the contact form is usually very boring and, and, and dry, and most people don't enjoy doing it. Lead funnel usually just has wrong answers most of the time with a high uh, abrupt rate at the end when you have to add personal details. Mm. The website bot is usually a static uh, uh, where I have predefined questions and answers that I have to click. And finally, the call center is really expensive to run. So what yeah. we are offering is we're saying, hey, let, give your customers the ability to ask you the questions. We call these questions the last uh, mile of product consulting. These are open okay. questions usually required before the transaction or the interest is really there. How much mm. does it cost? You know, do I need to, um, how much guarantee do I have? Um, can you deliver to this and this address? And the questions are ideal to answer per WhatsApp. Why? Because the customer automatically gives his contact details when answering per WhatsApp, also when sending a WhatsApp. So I already have mm. a lead, I already have a phone number behind a request, which usually 99% of funnels miss out on. Yeah. And secondly, I have opened up a communication channel, which the AI sales agent is servicing at the beginning, but upon which my sales staff can touch upon um, and can reopen that conversation or even target through marketing initiatives like WhatsApp marketing. Yeah. And so as I understand, you're, you're leveraging large language models to kind of engage in interaction with the customers, not? Exactly. Yeah. And um, because I think there is a big discussion ab uh, about uh, how useful are large language models already in real business applications, uh, but we all see, I think, the, the huge opportunities but I think at the moment there's a bit of concern like, okay, these models can kind of generate an adequate answer in, let's say, 90, 95% of the cases, and they, they are really good in that. But if you want to get to 99% accuracy or even 100% accuracy, that seems to be still very challenging to realize, especially if you want to kind of leverage your own knowledge and you need what is called rock applications, refined augmented uh, algorithms, and there seem to be quite some limitations there. 
how do you deal with that kind of issue that's okay for 90 95% of the cases it, it generates very good information but to bring it to 99% that still seems to be quite challenging so um, our product team does work um, very focused to close this gap and we think it's mm. extremely important to be able to close this gap um, to give the customers the exact right information so what we do is two things um, we try to uh, you know um, actively reduce bias and hallucinations um, that are inherent to LLM models by mm. first of all um, adding additional input that is specific to the to the client so one of our clients um, is a large retailer of expensive rings. So we actually input product catalog um, through API connections that gives an idea on products, uh, prices. So we actually feed that model um, yeah. the correct information that is currently live on the website. The mm. second task that we do to prevent hallucinations and also is we give the agent very clear boundaries on what to act upon and what to not act upon. So mm. it does restrict the operating field, okay? It cannot tell you what the weather is today, um, <laughs> but it will obviously try to advise you and convert you to the next sales event uh, required. So it limits the requirements, but increases the reliability. Um, and that's how today our product team is engaging this challenge. Yeah, okay, clear. Yeah, so you're putting some boundaries, you're kind of doing some specialized training on specialized data to reduce this risk of hallucination as much as possible. Yeah. Okay, exactly. makes sense. So I think also one of the great things is we connect to the client's, you know, content data management or, you know, database um, where we actually can pull live information. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and of course, you're now, I think, talking with a lot of uh, companies uh, that do D2C. Um, and, and so the topic uh, that you're focusing on is conversion of customers, which is actually a topic that I think is, is interesting for a lot of listeners, because I think conversion of clients is one of the biggest challenges that early stage startups typically face. Talking with these clients, what kind of stuff did you learn about the difficulty of conversion what do you and maybe also based on your own experience at Kitchix, why is conversion of customers such a challenge for early stage startups um so i think it's um get, getting the right sales funnel especially as a you know consumer startup or consumer company is is, is really important and identifying mm -hmm. those channels that will convert a lot higher is is key um, for us, in our experience, um, some, with some of the clients we deal with, which are usually high-ticket items uh, in consumer businesses, high-ticket items we define as products that are require some consulting behind it. But it's not like a pair of socks, but it's usually um, you know an expensive grill, or it's glasses, or it's um, tailored suits. Um, it's also dentists, uh, dentist services that requires some sort of consulting behind it. They are very hard to convert. Uh, and there is usually a high um, loss of, of leads along the way of the qualification process. With our solution, we think uh, this automatic sales agents through WhatsApp have, have increased sales conversions or lead conversions, sorry, to be, to be exact, uh, by the ten, tenfold mm. compared to existing channels. Okay. The existing channels are in this case the contact formulas, the lead funnels, and the requests per appointments per telephone. 
we have mm. seen, we have seen a ten tenfold increase of conversion because I'm able to capture mm. this cold traffic and bring them exactly into appointments or into concrete sales uh, offers or orders. This helps reduce customer acquisition costs immensely. Okay. So retailers that we work with have seen a decrease of marketing spend and increase in sales, which is the ideal scenarios of retailers. Yeah. Okay. Clear. Now, now maybe to briefly go back to the, the, the kitschik and the transition. So uh, you have spent, I would say like two or even three years on kitschik, yeah. something like that. No? Yeah, yeah. Three years. Yeah. Um, and as you mentioned, you, you managed to, to get substantial annualized revenue, but in the end, uh, you had to come to the conclusion, like, look, it's time to close down, uh, also driven, I would say, by exogenous circumstances and just a macroeconomic environment that was not really great for you. Now, apparently, you, <laughs> you didn't wait that long to start the next startup, which I, I always find intriguing because you have spent like three years of your life working very hard. And in the end, okay, it was not a, a, a big failure, but it was also not a big success. But apparently you seem to have the drive also together with your co-founder to immediately jump into the next adventure, which me as an outsider, I have to say as a professor, I always find quite intriguing that, that people seem to be able to kind of just jump into the next adventure. Can you maybe explain me a bit like how, how this drive is, is, is there? I think I, 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 it's hard to rationalize this, um, but at the end, <laughs> okay. yeah. Um, and in the end, Lasse, Kevin, and I, which are the three founders of Palimero, yeah. and we met each other through the Kitschik's time, um, we we learned a lot, and we learned that we can work together really well. So I think yeah. I think a good team already in place is the basis for you know a good startup uh, and mm. building a new company. I think that's one of the things that most new founders struggle with: not having a team around. Yeah. Um, we had a good team put together three different personalities, three different skill sets that complement each other. And we met and we were proven through our times at Kitchens. Secondly, yeah. I think is once your first startup does, doesn't work out as you'd expected it, you, you get used to, um, you get used to being a free lion in the savannah. <laughs> uh, and you know uh, addressing challenges uh, and, and 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 living a, a sort of risk profile yeah and enjoying like enjoying these ups and taking the downs and then it goes back up and i think you get a little bit emotionally addicted to this it's my theory mm. going yeah. back to a classical corporate jobs um with less of these unbalances and you know uh, very good times and very you know hard times um, makes it just a little bit boring. So it wasn't <laughs> an option for us to go back into corporates. So what we did okay. do at the beginning was we switched into consulting jobs. So we went into freelance consulting, consulting some of our mm -hmm. clients, um, some of our you know people we were working with before. I was working as an you know in that field before, and that enables us to get some initial you know funding um to start in Qualimero. Um but uh yeah I think the team was there the mindset was there and the idea was was there um it was just you know let's do it now and there was yeah. also one more thing you know once 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 you know the startup sort of dro drops down and fails you are you know you're back to square zero and the great thing mm. about being 
square so square one, you know. But the great thing about being at square one is you don't have that much to lose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I like what you're saying because you're saying, look, of course, when when it, it doesn't kind of run out as you want it, your team gets really tested, you know, you you're you're facing quite significant challenges together. And if a team at least can kind of survive that kind of testing environment, uh, if you go through the storm together and, and you have the feeling that you have built the resilience as a team together, that of course then demonstrates that you have a very strong team and that this team might be able to pull off the next challenge. Um, so that seems to be the core reasoning, if I understand it well. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Uh, maybe one more question about WhatsApp. Um, because, okay, WhatsApp is owned by Meta. And I think uh, in the, I would say in the business literature, there has been a lot of speculation about what Meta actually wants to do with WhatsApp and, and more specifically how they want to monetize it. Because actually nowadays they, they are not really monetizing this particular application. Now, given that you are kind of an expert in WhatsApp that, that, and that you have been using it a lot, do you have any predictions or do you see any trend towards what WhatsApp will become in the future? Yes. So very, very good, good question. Um, so I, I think if we look to the Brazilian or Indian market and we see mm. what or, you know, Latin America, I would say, if we see what Meta is testing there in terms of WhatsApp, I think that's what you know the future holds uh, for Europe. Um, so what are they doing? In, in India, you can already make payments. Um, mm. It's like you know, in Germany, we would say PayPal. So they have that function mm. in there. And in Latin America, they also have sub-services involved. Um, so they have, you know, open API where I can add product catalogs, uh, make orderings. Um, so I think it will become more and more a sales channel. Mm. And if we want the full big picture, I think we're looking at a WeChat sort of model um, yeah. that is planned here. Uh, it will take some time, I think. Know legislation and 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 mm. in Europe will have uh, uh, will be a little bit of a break in innovation, but uh, I think that's the overall picture to reach a WeChat sort of status. Yeah, so then it becomes an an uh, an uh, kind of over encompassing app where you can do everything that you need to do. Yeah, exactly. I can book okay. my 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 cab ride. I I can book a hotel. I can pay my bills. I can you know get life insurance on it if I need to. And I yeah, think that's okay. some of the use cases that we are experimenting in today. It is possible. We are doing some of these features. We're just relying mm -hmm. on third party. So for instance, we are offering today a checkout system on WhatsApp. We're just connecting okay. it with Stripe. Yeah. So we're, okay. not in, we're not executing it. Or we are enabling customers to sign contracts through WhatsApp. We're just okay. offering it through a third party app, DocuSign. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because um, I... I've... I've seen recently, for instance, in India that nowadays you can even kind of get your um, identity cards via WhatsApp and stuff like that. So they seem to be way, way ahead of us in that yeah. kind of applications. Uh, I, I don't, it's very difficult to imagine that in Germany you would be able to apply for an identity yeah. card via WhatsApp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't even be able to apply for an appointment. Yeah, but that also, of course, takes the question: Do you actually think that the German market is ready for this? 
So that's a very, very good question. Uh, we, we, we have this debate uh, very frequently okay. uh, in our management team. Um, so we are actually targeting the German market, um, but we're also targeting the Indian and US market. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we have teams there that are sales rep um, and, and execute sort of sales in those areas because they are more innovative and open to executing these than the core conservative European markets. Um, that's unfortunately the case, but it's also an opportunity for us um, to execute, you know, as a SaaS solution across borders. Um, also within Europe, um, the uh, rate is uh, highly different. So if we look to our neighbors, the Netherlands, yeah, they yeah. operate and execute WhatsApp um, in a conversational commerce way much more than we do in Germany. Mm. Yeah. So you would say that that Germany is simply a late entrant and you see that even in the neighboring countries, they are already much more advanced in this. And so you're expecting that Germany will follow in the end. That's, just that's all time. Yeah, yes, that's your bet. Okay, good. Um, I, I actually have, have, a, have a broader question for you because, of course, I checked out your LinkedIn profile before we talked. And I saw that actually before you started KitchX, um, you actually have been working in a more corporate setting. And I was quite intrigued by your time at, at OB Next. So OB, a big corporate in Germany. And they seem to have this kind of, I don't know if it's exactly what it is, but a kind of digital venture builder that they called OB Next. And so you have been working there for a number of years. And so that means that you don't only have experience as an entrepreneur, but actually also as what we call an intrapreneur. Yeah? So that you're kind of doing entrepreneurship within the setting of a corporate. Can you maybe briefly reflect on, on what you learned there during these years, yes. positive or negative? Yes. Yes. So um, OBNX was basically the innovation digital unit created um, by Obi, which is the uh, DIY retailer store across, across yeah. Europe. Um, their idea was to basically disrupt itself before disruption comes from the outside. Mm-hmm. Um and there for me was a great opportunity to start learning about, you know, digital models before I was working um, at BCG in a you know, restructuring setting. So, you know, cost cutting and structuring yeah. companies. So really learning about digital business models, um, lead generation, lead models, um, creating marketplaces. I actually helped support the creation of uh, a marketplace for contractor services called Macha Macha. Um, so there was a really great opportunity and a great setting for me to learn in a safe space about key concepts yeah. of um, innovation, obviously in a corporate setting. So as always, you know, any corporate innovation is always restricted to certain limitations that you would not have if you were doing it alone. But yeah. it, it's a great safe, safe, safe haven for me to at that, at that time test some new ideas. Yeah. Okay. Because it's actually a question that I also often get from our students. And we have this master in entrepreneurship, for instance, and when students kind of are at the end of their educational trajectory here, and they start sometimes getting offers from this kind of units, but they might also have in the back of their mind, the ambition to create their own startup. And so you see that they are often a bit in doubt about, should I first go maybe into a more, uh, this kind of safe space, as you describe it, where I can learn some stuff, I can experiment, or should I immediately kind of make the bet and start my own startup? 
maybe based on your own experience, what would be your recommendation to the students? <laughs> So I would say it really depends uh, in terms of how much of an idea you have already and of a founders team you have and a network. Um, I would say if you have a great network already during during your student days and if you have already a concrete idea, maybe already an MVP that's, you know, maybe we're getting clicks or interests, um, I would say pursue the idea because the mm. learnings of an entrepreneur, not an intrapreneur, but an entrepreneur are, mm. you know, a hundredfold. Yeah. If you don't have an idea, if you don't maybe have a solid network, if you're still unexperienced about, you know, setting up MVPs, then I maybe do think uh, intrapreneurship is a good way. For me, um, I think it was a good way, you know, as a coming from a sort of consultancy sort of mindset, open up, build a network. And if you, if you look at, my, at the end of the day at what Kitchix was, was, you know, taking some of the initial ideas that we, you know, we had tested maybe next, but applying them to the kitchen world. Right, mm. fully integrated end-to-end, -end, you know, marketplace for kitchens and furnitures. I already you know, had a good idea on how to manage contractors. What that looked like, products, logistics. I had learned a lot about that about Obinext as well. So for me, the progression was startup. I knew that what that's the road I wanted to go, and the entrepreneurship helped me really to sort of build my network, build my ideas, and. Yeah, that's what in, in the literature we would describe. You need to have the necessary social and human capital uh, before you create your own startup. And if you already have it, then you can do it. If you don't yet have it, it might be better to at first indeed go to this kind of uh, entrepreneurship environment or maybe uh, do the job as a founder associate at another startup to just build experience yes. before you do your own startup. Yeah. Okay, so you would agree with that. Great. And uh, maybe something about uh, your your team, as you were saying before, the team was a very important kind of reason to create this new initiative. Uh, but and, and actually, I don't know the third co-founder, but at least Lasse and you, as I understand, you don't have a very strong or nah, strong is the wrong word. Um, you guys come from more a business background and not really a technical background. And I think there's a lot of discussion nowadays about can you still build a successful startup without having a technical co-founder? Yeah. Uh, what would be your position on that discussion? It's funny because when we were doing the um, accelerator, everybody mm -hmm. was saying, hey, you guys don't have a technical co-founder. You guys, you know, <laughs> and that forced us to obviously, so we wanted to, so our decision was to wait before we find the right guy. Okay. Mm. And that, that, that decision was really right in the end. So we mm. would have rather waited for, you know, a seed round or a pre-seed round to hire a top guy instead of, you know, bringing somebody early stage in who we couldn't really afford, um, who did not have the technical skills required at an early stage. So our decision was to wait until we get the right technical co-founder. Um, until we had the seed, seed round, which we did in the end, right? Um, yeah. But what did we do before that? It really forced us work with no-code tools. Okay. Mm. These are so powerful today. And if we look at, um, you know, basic tools like um, Zapier, um, like uh, Bubble or Airtable, it already enables you to build great MVP products that you mm. can get funding upon without having a yeah. technical expertise. And having ChatGPT now as well act as a sort of, you know, no-code advisor, really. In my opinion, 
delays the time at which you need to find a, 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 a technical. So there is some time now that I think it is possible to really build upon these no-code tools. Yeah. At some stage, these no-code tools become non-scalable. They become harder yeah. to, to adapt. They become harder to scale. So at that stage, you will have to switch. But hopefully yeah. until then, you have funding and you can build a DevOps team or a product team that can help you support that transition. Yeah, so also, yeah, I think, that's, I... also, also yeah, I think one more thing is the product changes so often at the beginning of, uh, of the journey. Um, you're building features and you're changing stuff. And I remember when we were building you know, our product on Airtable and, and with Zapier in the background, we were continuously changing this product. And I remember one very specific decision. We were meeting with a software development company, which made us an offer to develop the product that we had in mind for 60,000 euros. And we mm. thought, what? And they were good. These guys were good. And the price was fair. And you know, it was a VAU contact, great company. <laughs> love you guys. But then we said, hey, guys, before we spend this amount of money, how about we build it on no code? Because we don't even know what we're building yet. And that was the best financial decision that I think I made. Yeah. Because it really enables me to adapt that product very easily. And I'm in charge of changing features and adapting features instead of a software developer that I'm paying, you know, 200 euros an hour. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's a very interesting point that these no-code tools can actually, they give you the, the opportunity to postpone kind of uh, hiring a top-notch um, CTO or technical co-founder or whatever. Uh, and until uh, you, you have kind of a better understanding in which direction you're actually going. So it reduces it, the need to immediately hire somebody and it gives you the time to really search for somebody that perfectly fits with the team. Very interesting approach. Yeah. yeah. So maybe we should uh, at our in our in VAU, we should start a course on no code tools to help uh, entrepreneurs. Yeah. Like that. I actually do think so. There is uh, there is a guy I unfortunately don't know his name, and he's um, hosting workshops, um, rapid prototyping with no code. Uh, at least in the mm. Düsseldorf campus. I feel bad yet now for not reminding me of his name, but um, <laughs> yeah. we can post it in the links. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um. Maybe something about, uh, indeed, uh, you, you did the, uh, so we talked about how um, you had this experience in the corporate and that helped you becoming an entrepreneur, and, but you also did this MBA program at BAU. Any reflection on how that MBA program has helped you in your further steps? Yeah, I think the MBA program really uh, um, opened up this, 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 these different insights and, and inputs that I have received across, you know, different professionals and individuals mm. that I've met along the way. And I started the MBA program really thinking, you know, I want to, I want to, you know, progress the corporate ladder. Yeah. And I ended up the MBA. <laughs> I want to be an entrepreneur now. Yeah. And it was such a life-changing experience. And, you know, and you wouldn't, I wouldn't have never, and when I tell people that, and it's like, well, why would you do an MBA to find that you're an entrepreneur? Well, actually for me, it was the best investment because that told me exactly mm. who I want to be and uh, yeah. what, what my purpose is. Um, so for me, it was very life-changing. All these experiences, individuals, guest talks, entrepreneurs that I got to meet, all this input I was getting eventually defined my professional career now for the years. Yeah. Yeah, so it was it was more a kind of, learning about what is actually the optimal career trajectory for me in the future. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I think in the MBA, it's a, and I remember, you know, Martin Fasnach and other individuals saying that it's more about 
personal journey, mm. discovering yourself and you know your future career and defining that. Yeah. And I have to, and I thought, you know, at the beginning, I thought, well, you know, I'm here to learn, you know, hard facts and stuff, but it is true. Yeah. It is, it is a personal journey. It is much yeah. more than an academic journey. It is an academic journey with the personal life-changing elements behind it. Yeah. yeah. Great. Okay, Marco. Um, we always want to end the episodes with um, asking our guests for some recommendations about books that they have recently read that they think are really inspiring or podcasts that you're listening to that you think the audience should listen to. Any recommendations for the audience? So I was actually reading over the uh, Christmas period the book How Big Things Get Done um, from Dan okay. Gartner. Um, it's a book that uh, basically explains how large projects get executed or complex projects get executed and what are some of the common pitfalls behind it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't want to spoil too much or give it away, <laughs> but it's uh, packed with real cases and real examples. And it really shows you how, um, you, you know, like uh, behavioral bi biases or psychology can help impact uh, large projects in being executed. So I yeah. think if you're if you're embarking on a large project or something that is life changing or big, whether in a corporate setting, I think it's a very interesting just to see a, a collection of case studies. Okay, great, great. Okay, Marco. Then I would like to thank you for sharing some of your recent experiences with us, and I wish you, of course, all the best luck with your new initiative. Sounds very exciting, and yeah, given that I'm a bit of a large language model nerd, I'm very intrigued about what you're yes. doing. So I, I really w would like to have a follow up, maybe privately, to go a bit deeper into the tech nerd stuff. But that's uh, that's another topic. We don't want to bore our audience with that, I would suppose. And uh, to our audience, thanks for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and please connect again for our next one. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.